My name is Michael Welch. The program is the Global Research News Hour. Sometime on the evening of April 13th, 2014, following the airing of his weekly broadcast, The Lifeboat Hour, radio show host Michael C. Rupert ended his existence on this mortal plane. According to his attorney and former business partner, Rupert's body was found at an outdoor meditation spot on the property at which he had been living in Calistoga, California. A total of five notes were left behind on the property, that plus notes left online for friends, a history of suicidal ideation, and a thorough debriefing with the Napa County Sheriff's Office the next day led Rupert's attorney and executor, Wesley Miller, to the conclusion that he did indeed kill himself. Apparent cause, self-inflicted head wound with a Glock 30 45 caliber pistol. Michael Rupert had developed a legion of followers and admirers over the course of the last decade. He was a former narcotics officer with the Los Angeles Police Department, a former investigative journalist, author, activist, and whistleblower. As an investigative journalist, he had a hand in breaking stories about Wall Street's laundering of drug money, evidence of U.S. government conscious malfeasance in the attacks of 9-11, the friendly fire murder of one Pat Tillman in Afghanistan, and about the exposure of peak oil as one of the underlying motives behind the U.S. government's aggressive military campaigns in the Middle East and elsewhere. As a radio program that takes care to highlight analyses frequently missed, if not censored, by the mainstream, the Global Research News Hour has chosen to set aside a special hour dedicated to the life, work, and legacy of a man who we esteem to be a giant in the field of independent media. You will hear from people familiar with Mike Rupert who will relay some of their thoughts about what his life has meant to them and will try to contextualize his death. You will also hear excerpts from talks and interviews conducted with Mike over the course of his career, which help clarify his own perspectives, passion, and priorities. Listeners wishing to learn more about Rupert and how they too can memorialize the passing of this indie media hero will receive more information on how to do that at the end of this radio essay. Michael C. Rupert was born into a family with strong ties to U.S. intelligence agencies. This pedigree shaped what his life ultimately became. They were extremely influential, but I didn't adapt all of their worldview. I was a child of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I was uh, at UCLA uh, then, you know, from 69 through 73 during the height of the, the Vietnam War. Those uh, experiences from the rise of the Beatles and and, uh, and 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 all of that peace consciousness, all of that great consciousness shift that happened in the 1960s also had an influence on me as well. I had already come to believe that the United States government had, uh, which they did, uh, had participated and orchestrated the assassinations of John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. So I wasn't blind, but when I was asked, or when it was put to me, and I was actively being groomed, I, I started interning for the chief of police. When I was an undergraduate at UCLA, they ran my background and found out I had a higher clearance than the chief of police because of my parents. Uh, so they assumed that I was part and parcel of that, and so I was exposed to enormous secrets inside of, of the government and the, and the police department. However, 
when I, the CIA tried to recruit me twice, once officially, the second through a sexual recruitment by, by a female contract agent, career agent, uh, who I, I was engaged to. And when it was made clear that uh, what I was being groomed for was to protect CIA drug shipments coming into the country, that was the that that was, if you will, the moment of truth, which happened when I was about 26, 27 years old. And I wouldn't do it. Mm. And you, you talk about the criminality there within the CIA and your knowledge and conviction that they were complicit in drug trafficking, of course, led to, um, as we mentioned, your showdown with John Deutsch at Locke High School in 1996. The CIA director, John Deutsch, who was not a field guy and not, not, not very bright in terms of street sense, uh, was foolish enough to agree to make a public appearance at Locke High School in Compton, that's in South Central Los Angeles. And I had been on the record at that time for 18 years uh, saying that CIA was bringing drugs into the country and I had a lot of good information. So I was called on by Congresswoman McDonald and I just nailed it. I was personally exposed to CIA operations and recruited by CIA personnel who attempted to recruit me in the late 70s to become involved in protecting agency drug operations in this country. I have been trying to get this out for 18 years, and I have the evidence. My question for you is very specific, sir. If in the course of the IG's investigations and Fred Hitz's work, you come across evidence of severely criminal activity, Let him speak and, and it's mind. classified, will you use that classification to hide the criminal activity, or will you tell the American people the truth? John Deutsch made a fool of himself on the stage, and he promised to put people in jail and hold them accountable, which never happened. That cost him his guaranteed appointment as uh, Secretary of Defense, and he was uh, compelled to resign from CIA for such poor judgment a short time thereafter. Right now, we're speaking with uh, Carolyn Baker. She was a uh... Uh, an adjunct professor of history and psychology for 11 years and uh, was also a, uh, a psychotherapist in private practice for 17 years. Uh, she's written uh, extensively on the subject of uh, collapse, including the books uh, Collapsing Consciously, Transformative Truths for Turbulent Times, Navigating the uh, Coming Chaos, A Handbook for Inner Transition, and Sacred Demise, Walking the Spiritual Path of Industrial Civilization's Collapse. And Carolyn Baker, of course, was a very close associate of the recently deceased Michael Rupert. In fact, she... Uh, co-hosted uh, his final program on the Lifeboat Hour. So, Carolyn Baker, uh, it has been a great pleasure to speak with you uh, finally, but uh, I wish it could have been under different circumstances. Yes, I do too. Thank you for having me on your program. Now, uh, you, Carolyn Baker, you go, you and Mike go quite a ways back, uh, at least as far as uh, 2000, I believe? Yeah, that's when we first met, in, in the year 2000. Okay. I was living in the Southwest, and uh, I just kind of became acquainted with the topic of uh, United States government involvement in drug trafficking and money laundering, and uh, I kind of followed uh, different things on the Internet and connected with From the Wilderness, and I started uh, becoming a subscriber of that newsletter, and then later I connected with Mike about a few months later, and I visited him in Los Angeles. He had, uh, the day before I visited him, he had uh, done a presentation on Wall Street's war for drug money at USC for a political science class, and he had a couple of uh, DVD copies of the lecture, and he gave one to me. And uh, we struck up a fast friendship, and then in a couple of years, I started writing for From the Wilderness from time to time. What are some of the, maybe the standout uh, 
moments for you that maybe helped embody uh, what Mike was all about? Well, um, just the incredible, impeccable research that he did. Um, He was very picky about putting things out unless they were very well documented. And um, he certainly helped with uh, understanding the Bush uh, administration and that whole selection process that was not an election, but rather a selection. Um, He helped uh, all of us understand 9-11. And then when he wrote uh, Crossing the Rubicon in 2004, we had... Uh, just the most amazing encyclopedia of what actually happened on 9-11 with uh, over 600 pages, over a 1,000 footnotes. It's now in the Harvard Business School Library. Uh, If anyone hasn't read it, they really need to, to have a fuller understanding of, a complete understanding, I think, of 9-11. And then he helped us understand the Iraq War and what that was all about and then uh, connected the dots to peak oil. Um, he started to write about a housing bubble at, uh, you know, in the earliest moments of that event and track that as it was unfolding. Um, and then in 2006, uh, he felt like his life was in danger and he needed to escape to Venezuela. Before he did that, however, he and Stan Goff uh, began the Pat Tillman series, and I believe he completed that. Well, no, they completed it before he left, but he had a little bit more to say about that and dialogue with uh, Pat Tillman's mother when he came back from Venezuela. Um, and then in 2010, he founded CollapseNet, uh, which was an attempt to carry on a lot of the activity from the wilderness. You you made uh, went seemed to go to great lengths to uh, to try to explain people or, or to chase away any speculation that this was anything but uh, a suicide that it wasn't a, an assassination or hypnosis or, or anything like that. Well, why did you feel the need to to emphasize that? Because of all the chatter that's been going on in Facebook and emails that I've been getting and emails that other people who are close to Mike have been getting um, that were just you know, absolute bunk. And for those of us who've known him for a long time, this was not a surprise. And, you know, the man is mortal like everyone else, and uh, he talked a lot about suicide. And uh, it just is absolutely untrue that he was taken out or, you know, mind-controlled or, you know, somebody suggested that it was... uh, high-frequency, white noise, or something like that. And um, these are just, um, you know, off-the-charts speculations that absolutely are not true. They're they're just ridiculous. If you know Mike, they were ridiculous. What do you think uh, Mike's legacy will be in terms of uh, what he's left behind for for those of us uh, who uh, may follow in his, if you wish to follow in his footsteps? Well, um... You know, some of that legacy we know and we will know. And then, uh, as with anyone who who does anything of service in the world, you never really know how far your your reach is going to extend. So I can tell you that there are thousands of people who've been influenced by Mike, many, many people influenced by the Collapse movie. I talk to them almost every day, people who are familiar with that movie, and that movie woke them up. Um, there are other people that go way back to from the wilderness, and you know, almost 
everybody who comments on their knowledge of Mike says he's the one who woke me up. Um, so the man, the man really served, a, did a tremendous service uh, for people in terms of awareness, raising awareness, and being able to document what he was saying. And we have the greatest respect for that at From the Wilderness. I, I want to thank you then for uh, for being my guest, and uh, I hope I look forward to uh, interviewing you again at some point soon. I would love that, and uh, you know, uh, I'll be continuing with the Lifeboat Hour. And uh, you can always contact me at my website, carolynbaker.net. Okay. Carolyn Baker, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. We've been speaking with Carolyn Baker, who is the um, longtime associate of Mike Rupert. We're going to talk about 9-11, because in talking about 9-11, we're going to talk about how it was perpetrated. Because if you understand the how and the mechanisms by which government, press, the economy, the banking system, the world uh, political landscape were manipulated to produce a 9-11, you will have a clue as to how all of those factors can be manipulated again to produce events that are yet to come. Kelia Romares Watson is an Oakland-based broadcaster and an independent journalist, an honors graduate of Fordham University in New York, also with a law degree from Indiana University Bloomington. She co-hosted Guns and Butter on its debut episode in October of 2001, which featured none other than Michael Rupert as a guest speaking about the September 11th attacks and evidence that the U.S. government had full foreknowledge of those attacks. So, um, Kellya Ramirez Watson, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for doing this. Do you remember the the, the reaction from from listeners and and from uh, people within the the radio station itself? Oh yes, unfortunately, I was just talking about it with Cecile. Uh, the reaction outside the station was one of interest, wanting to know more, and a person called. Larry Bensky's show. Larry Bensky was a very well-known uh, public affairs host and a former GM of KPFA at the time. He wasn't GM at the time, but he had been. And he was asked, well, uh, Rupert said this and that on that show. What do you think about it? And he is reputed, I did not hear it myself, but he is reputed to have said, I do not have time for recreational speculation. Uh, my news directors were not interested in following up on anything that we had done. And as a matter of fact, we had one of them telling uh, us that she was uncomfortable about doing a promo for us when we did another show in February of 2002 uh, on Rupert because he is, quote-unquote, out there. And I asked her, have you been to his website? And she said no. I had gone to see Juan Gonzalez. I was actually asked to go. I was sat down in front of him. He's the co-host of Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I explained to him what I had. He gave me his home address. He said he would listen to tapes and read uh, um, written material with an open mind. I sent him a package of various things that Mike Rupert had said and our shows, etc., and he never got back to me, and neither did Amy Goodman. I sent her an identical package, 
and also people were online on those various email discussion lists that they have and saying, oh, this is bad because people won't understand that this is a different show from Democracy Now! and it'll hurt Amy Goodman. Uh, excuse me. Number one, the listeners are not that stupid as to know the, not know the difference between a morning show and an afternoon show and Amy and Kelly and Bonnie. But on top of that, hey, um, I do my research and I do my journalism based on my leads and my facts and my sources, and I don't do it because I'm concerned with how it will be for Amy. And she does her own work, and she does it independent of a concern for what it might do to Kelly or Bonnie or anyone else. So this is a bunch of nonsense. And that's the kind of stuff we got from most of um, the KPFA milieu. We did have a supporter in Wendell Harper who was the senior news staffer at the time and had his own public affairs show, and another reporter named Ed Rippey. But for the rest of it, they were they were just leaving us uh, to be. And, uh, for example, Chris Welch, who was a public affairs uh, host and on had a noon show called Living Room, she told me, oh, I want uh, Mike Rupert to debate Norman Solomon on this. And I said to her, why don't you ask Mike your own questions? Be as skeptical as you want to be, but ask your own questions. And she said, well, I don't know enough about the issue. Norman does. This is a host of a major public affairs show, and she doesn't know about 9-11. Come on. Hmm. So uh, that's the inside. Outside, people wanted to know more. And when we did inf- uh, have a uh, special fundraiser uh our uh, edition based on a live San Francisco appearance of Mike, and we cut down practically four hours of material to 45 minutes. It was the, at that time, third most popular in terms of fundraising money uh, hour that the station had ever had. Like currently, with the uh, the death of Mr. Rupert, to, to my knowledge, uh, none of these uh, you know Democracy Now or, or any of these other higher ups have even acknowledged his death. Even I though I wouldn't be surprised, and I will tell you frankly that I had left KPFA in July of 2010 over budgeting issues. Uh, I then uh, came back this January for a little bit to do. Oh, a, a week of uh, a day, a week of volunteer reporting in return for access to their studio afterward. Excuse me, had withdrawn two weeks ago because I have a paid uh, freelance project to do. Uh, but now that I know that Mike is dead, I am never ever darkening their door again because I'm sitting there saying, "Why am I even in the same halls with these people?" Uh, I I just you know. I, I've got to find some better way to work than with these lily-livered leftists who have uh, really, I, I believe, seriously contributed to Mike's demise because somebody who's done that kind of hard work for so long needs some validation. Mm. <clears throat> and even after uh, you got information uh, from... Cheney and Condoleezza Rice, that they knew something ahead of time. It was on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. Still, these people were ignoring Rupert and 
putting them down, and, you know, I don't want anything more to do with them. I really don't. Okay. Uh, well, you've sort of, uh, I, I guess you've at least partially addressed my question, like what, what impact has Mike Rupert and his work had on your uh, your approach to journalism and uh, your, your, your perspective on the, the well, issues? Well, uh, I think that Mike now, now approached things in a very good way. He used multiple sources. His approach was to use the best sources he could find that were publicly available to show us that we had... Uh, <clears throat> We were being told what was going on. We just weren't paying attention because it was one thing here, one thing there. Uh, what Mike really wanted to do, which is something that I also want to do, is get to the very bottom of why something is. In this age of 24-7 journalism, we nevertheless are going to shorter and shorter and shorter pieces and we don't have time to really look at why something is happening, which is the the, uh, the uh, primary question of the investigative reporter. Mike Rupert was an investigative reporter. I try to be. Uh, I lack the resources that uh, he had. But uh, the, the person who asks why is not being given enough time in media. Uh, and I think that really needs to change. That plus having more, having people just look at different things. You know, I, I check the New York Times, and I read things on the Internet as well. Uh, that we, we have to learn to vary our sources, and then we'll see what the, what the government and what the corporations have actually put out there right before our eyes, but just in various places. He was a stupendous uh, researcher and uh, investigator. Um, I, when you think of all of the stories that he broke over the course of his uh, career, uh, you know, the money question, uh, the 9-11, the Pat Tillman uh, uh, series, and, uh, you know, the you know, peak oil, what, what do you think will come out as his crowning achievement? Well, I think he'll always be known from 9-11. Uh, as for his crowning achievement, uh I want to say peak oil because ultimately peak oil is the reason 9-11 happened. Uh, we had, uh, and I was just re watching uh, Collapse again. I had watched it when it first came out. Uh, unfortunately, my Wi-Fi broke down. I only saw the first half hour. But uh, really, you can tie the wars of humanity to the fact that we are running out of the stuff that sustains the industrial way of life. Uh, if anything, uh, his legacy may very well be to get people to realize, hey, we can't live the way we used to, maybe the way we grow up. He was only four and a half years older than me. So we're from the same generation, and we grew up in very different circumstances than uh, a child growing up today. And uh, a lot of people of parenting age today don't always realize that. Mm. Well, Kelly Ramirez Watson, I, I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing those thoughts with us and uh, my sincere condolences on uh, the loss of this uh, uh, important figure in your life. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Kelly Ramirez Watson, Oakland-based broadcaster and independent journalist. 
An important antecedent to the Mike Rupert tragedy was the suicide death of Gary Webb. Through his Dark Alliance series, Gary Webb, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter from the San Jose Mercury News, documented the CIA's role in the trafficking of drugs. His journalism, however, put him at odds with establishment media and establishment institutions. Webb had been driven to despair and likewise was found to have taken his own life in 2004. Rupert, a huge admirer of Webb's, took care to investigate the death and some speculation that there may have been more to this death than met the eye. His initial comments read as follows, recorded on the From the Wilderness newsletter and posted to the Global Research website December 14, 2004. Quote, Given the disproportionate number of suicides, quote-unquote, of authors and journalists who have covered such stories and the mainstream's horrendously dishonest coverage of such events, it is right to see if there are grounds to be cautiously suspicious of these accounts. But it is also right to avoid hysteria and unsupported conclusions until there are solid reasons to suspect foul play. Gary Wett would have wanted us all to do this by the numbers, patiently and thoroughly. That was his style. That was why he was so good. Having done his investigation, he finally came to the conclusion that all was sadly as it appeared. Here is how he put it in a more recent interview on the program Smells Like Human Spirit. Gary Webb, in the weeks before his suicide, wrote individual suicide letters to his three children, his ex-wife, his brother, and his mother. He changed his insurance policies to change the beneficiary and moved his personal belongings back into his mother's storage area, left a very clear and undisputed record of his intent to commit suicide. He was shot twice in the head. He shot himself because he put the gun in his right ear and then pointed down so that the first shot of a 38 caliber revolver blew out his lower left jaw. That's not a fatal wound. Mm-hmm. Then he walked over to the mirror saw what he had done and put a second round in his brain. I I stood in the room where he committed suicide. The tragedy of what happened to Gary Webb, when told truthfully, is far more significant than a pseudo-journalist who invents stories to to, uh, secure market share. Gary Webb was not murdered. Disinformation, in order to be effective, must be 90% true. Otherwise, you will not swallow the poison. Mm-hmm. And anyone in their right mind who would accept the word of a journalist who has been shown to falsify news stories deserves whatever they get as a result. Joining us now from Calistoga, California, is Wesley Miller. He succeeded Michael Rupert as president and CEO of Collapse Network. Uh, Wesley Miller is also Mike Rupert's attorney. So, uh, my, uh, Wesley, I, I want to thank you very much for, for joining us. And, uh, again, my uh, sincere condolences over the loss of this uh, uh, friend you. of yours. Uh, I would say a pleasure, but uh, more like an honor to be with you to, to help spread the word of what exactly happened and try to cast a little meaning on why Mike did what he did. I mean, I'm actually in Mike's trailer, and I've, I've slept in his bed the last couple of nights. Uh, Mike had a spot. He liked to look out at the mountain range and just meditate. Um, he was into very much into Native American spirituality, and so that was his sacred little area that he um, that that he uh, meditated and 
and worship spirit um, in his in his words. So that that was his chosen spot, and um, all the notes that he left directed, you know, people to not come in to the trailer until the police were here, and to avoid the spot where he was because he didn't he didn't want his friend Jack to to find him first. You know, he wanted the police to find him, but Jack did, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, um, it, it was sacred to him, and he 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 planned it meticulously and fooled everybody. Um, Jesse had no idea. I mean, he had, he had left beaming love messages to her on, on her voicemail uh, just in the days before, and um, it, nobody really here felt it coming, but his longtime friends certainly have. Uh, Mike was Mike has been expressing suicidal tendencies or ideations in front of me since the day I met him in person. Now, you uh, first connected with him. Uh, I mean, he'd established a, a body of journalistic work behind him, and my, my sense is that you kind of caught him in, in the kind of what, you know, the retirement from that phase of his life, and uh, the, the Collapse Network was uh, sort of, a, you know, in a sense, a kind of a, a retirement project where he was basically assisting people with, and the network being devoted to assisting people with making that transition to... Uh, yeah, so- our goal, our, Mike and I's stated purpose uh, in, in forming CollapseNet was to help save as many human lives in collapse as we possibly could. Um, and, it, and that's what tears me apart personally is because I couldn't do anything to save his life. Mm. You know? um, and it, mm. He was a... So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got a lot of heavy heads and heavy hearts around here processing all this stuff, but... Uh, he was also one of the most fun people to be around when he wasn't all uh, when he wasn't taking on the burdens of the world. You know, he yeah. Could you give us an example? Who really walked the line between genius and madness like no one I've ever known. Do you have a favorite memory or favorite moment that that really encapsulate that aspect of of, of Mr. Rupert? <laughs> oh, I, um, when he, when uh, Mel Gibson called him. After he um, saw the movie collapse, this was Mike. He, he he did a great accent. I can't do it justice at all. But uh, his uh, opening line to Mel Gibson was, "We didn't get dressed up for nothing." <laughs> 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 and uh, he was a, he he was instantly endearing to to people um, when he was when he was up when he was um, in that mode and. Uh, I guess the last time I saw him, uh, it, from Sebastopol anyway, uh, the last time I was in Sebastopol was in 2011. We had a little retreat there, and I, had, I brought my little pocket beagle, and she's playing with rags all the time, having fun. Well, she got into rags uh, canned dog food, and uh, she, I don't give her canned dog food, she, so she wasn't used to it. And getting out of here is like winding hairpin turns in the, out of these valleys, so... I'm in the, in the middle of these hairpin turns, and my dog gets uh, violently uh, diarrhea ill on me all over my car, and I can't stop anywhere, and I'm just having a nightmare, uh, and this happens to me half the way back to Portland. I call up Mike and tell him what's happening, and he says, Miller, you don't have karma. you got dogma. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's, he's, I don't know. He, he transitioned fast from brilliance to depression, you know, and... There's so many little memories and, uh, and, and long stories, you know. It's, it's hard to really get 
a lot of sound bites. He was he was brilliant. He uh, was very dogged, no pun intended. Uh, very um, incisive and insightful, and had a pretty big heart, is my sense. Yes, he was, he was the most courageous person I've ever known. I mean, he he took investigative journalism to a level that nobody has followed. And and uh, when he was at his best, he was at his best. He he exposed the Pat Tillman cover up and helped take down Donald Rumsfeld. Um, you know, his work on, on peak oil and and drawing the connections to 9-11 and CIA running drugs into L.A. back in, that got him started in his career. I mean, he's just done some phenomenal reporting over the years. And I want people to remember that and honor that, even if they think he was kooky at the end, you know. Um, when he was good, he was great. Did and when he was down, he was really down and out. Is there is there any sense that uh, you know part of like what drove him to these uh, you know uh, to those sorts of limits that, that that made those key achievements that there there, there is a, a connection with the, uh, the the that ultimate act he he ultimately took if if that that action was in in some sense like a, the, the shadow side of uh, the, the the other. Um, elements that drove him is like sort of like a yes yes um it's like a night and day kind of jekyll and hyde kind of personality flaw um is a way to put it i I think he had a touch of bipolar uh maybe more than a touch i'm not a psychiatrist or anything but he definitely exhibited that that kind of manicness sometimes and and uh and then the, the depression as well um I think he saw no way out for humanity, and in his act was the final act to get humanity to pay attention to to the multiple crises directly in front of us, or that we already are experiencing. And uh, the concept of climate collapse, um, he was very, very much into Guy McPherson's research, um, and became a firm believer that near-term climate collapse is going to make the habit, make the, the planet uninhabitable. And so in that sense, he wrote even in his note, we're out of time, there's no time left. But he, he, he also was a hypocrite that way. And the note that he left to Jesse, he said to give his watch to, to her son so he, you know, make sure he has it when he grows up, you know. So he, he had hope yet that there was something left, but he had no hope for himself. Hmm. You know, and I think he went out at the high of being in, completely in love and what, what we're all mad at him about, we're very angry, is leaving Jesse in the lurch like this, Jesse Ray. Um, she gave him her heart and soul and moved from Colorado with uh, uh, deeply in love, and, and it, it was reciprocal all the way. And uh, I think he didn't want to lose that. It was a, probably the best moment in his life, in, in that part of his life. You know, he had, he had felt something that he had never felt before. And he didn't. He didn't want it to be taken away. I guess. I, I mean, I'm, I'm. I'm speculating there, but it's. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty educated guess. And anything you'd like to leave our listeners with uh, before we close? Focus on what Mike was concerned about about the issues. Stand up and lead. Another thing that he kept asking of all of us: stand up and lead. 
so we can get out of this mess or try to get out of this mess. Focus on the message, not the man. We've been speaking with uh, the CEO and president of Collapse Network and Mike Rupert's attorney, Wesley Miller. What I have tried to construct for you is a map, a landscape, a political, economic, energy landscape of the world in which we live so that you can help, so that you can use that if you read it and use it and study it and incorporate new data into that map to ascertain and divine and map out the terrain upon which you stand. Because the world's about to change in a big way. Joining us now with his thoughts about Michael Rupert and his significance as a journalist is Barry Zwicker. Barry Zwicker is an author and social activist, an independent media critic, and has a background in print and broadcast journalism that spans six decades. Barry Zwicker was the first mainstream television journalist in the world to deeply question the official 9-11 story. And um, that telecast highlighted Michael Rupert's analysis of 9-11. Barry Zwicker, welcome back to the Global Research News Hour. Oh, glad to be with you, Michael. Could I maybe get your, uh, your thoughts about the, uh, the news of the tragic passing of uh, Michael Rupert? Yeah, it is tragic. That, that's for sure. I, I was shocked. And, uh, you know, for different reasons, the deaths of some people strike us as more or less shocking and more or less expected. And actually, an expected death can still be shocking and more or less tragic and more or less leaving us feeling robbed or angry or grateful or inspired in some combination. He carried, as it were, the burden of the world on his shoulders. Uh, You know, he was almost a Christ-like figure in that sense. He just felt the the, uh, the 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 weight of the of the crazy uh, way that that uh, so-called Western civilization is driving toward a cliff, and that that you know we'll plunge off of in what some people call the final plunge, mm-hmm. and he uh, he was one of those who. Uh, Agreed, I, w- I would say, with with Bertrand Russell, um, that uh, we must be able to peer into the chasm, into the abyss. That was the abyss, uh, and because he couldn't accept to believe something just because it was comfortable or pleasant to believe it. And um, Bertrand Russell's my greatest uh, hero, and and Michael Rupert was virtually a Russillian, um, so that he, uh, he, he was able to, to look at a very bad situation and not to turn away from it, not to deny it, but perhaps he internalized it in a way that, that, that uh, harmed him emotionally. And, uh, I, I hate to think that's the case, and that's where I feel we were, we've been robbed that he's gone, whether he took his own life or it was more complicated. Um, uh, we, we, we certainly have, have been robbed. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons that he inspires me, he was inspiring me and inspires me still, 
and will continue to do so, is that uh, he he rose, if you will, from the life of a hard scrabble L.A. cop, right up to a life of spiritual questing. You know, there are gurus who, who aren't turbaned, white-bearded East Indian ones, and there are prophets uh, who aren't referred to in ancient sacred texts. I think Mike really was both a, a, a guru and and a prophet. He was both of those. And he could be a, sometimes a slightly grumpy guru. <laughs> Barry, <laughs> but, I was just wondering, um, you know, the, the passing of this figure, that it was, should go without comment uh, among mainstream and much of the alternative media. What, what does that say to you as a media critic? Well, you know, the, the it, it's, it just it just proves the ongoing presence of cosmic injustice. I mean, the, 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 the parallel I thought of was that around the untimely passing of Mike, um, there was the untimely passing of a Canadian finance minister. And the, the passing of this finance minister received massive, days-long coverage, and most of it was adulatory, even though... This finance minister was responsible at the provincial, the Ontario provincial level and the federal levels for cutting social services and cutting public transit funds, reducing taxes on the excessively rich and so on. And, and he gets all this coverage and at the, about the same time, the death of a courageous truth teller and a true prophet received no mainstream media coverage whatsoever. So that's a chasm to look into. That's what I think as a media critic and as a person, a person who strives in his own way to be to be spiritual. I mean, it's just a massive injustice. It just shows that the value system is, uh, is cockeyed. Yeah. So um, I know that you've described, you've used the term litmus test to describe uh, the uh, the activist and journalist response to alternative explanations of 9-11. I guess it's safe to say Mr. Rupert passed that test. He sure did. He he just, he was so early. I I, I do remember going to, he was on a bit of a lecture tour in in, um, November of 01. For most people, 9-11 would be a bombshell. But he already then was able to place this bombshell um, in the framework of, of a more horrible, larger uh, reality of, of corruption, um, really, of society, if you will. So, it, it, and a lot of people have said this, that he was the first one who, who, who woke them up um, to, to uh, 9-11, and, 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 and uh, as his book, uh, the subtitle of his book, Crossing the Rubicon, has it, the decline of the American empire at the end of the age of oil. And I mean, the oil hasn't quite run out, and it wouldn't run out overnight, but basically he's on the right track. The more that history unreels uh, in front of us, the more the, the prophetic substance of Michael Rupert will become evident. Maybe some historians will grant him the respect that he so richly deserves. Okay, well, Barry Zucker, I know I want to thank you very much for for sharing these uh, thoughts with uh, our audience. 
and uh, hope that you can um, you'll be back on the show at some point soon. Sure, uh, I'm I'm sorry to uh, to be with you for this reason, mm-hmm. but otherwise I'm happy to be with you. Barry Zwicker is an author, social activist, and independent media critic based in Toronto. I think that my role. Uh, spiritually, and I do believe that I was born into this life with a mission and and uh, and with a distinct purpose, was to stay in the world of uh, 3D Cartesian logic, if you will, and using the tools of that paradigm, as faulty as they may be, to try and to warn, to warn and to awaken as many people as possible to the collapse of human industrial civilization and the ultimate challenge, which is evolve or perish, grow up or die. Uh, and I, I, I held that ground, and I won major battles in that world. Not only did I count coup on uh, CIA Director John Deutsch in our series of From the Wilderness on the Pat Tillman Expose in 2007, we were able to bring down Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. So I fought in those arenas, and, 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 and on using, if you will, their rules, which are, <laughs> which are crooked. Uh, but I scored major victories and also landed some big scars. But and now it's all spirit for me. Guy McPherson is Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. He's the author of the blog Nature Bats Last. And uh, Professor McPherson was a favorite interview guest of Michael Rupert on his radio show, The Lifeboat Hour, and has been frequently invoked in the context of collapse, not only of modern industrial civilization, but of the Earth's ecological support systems. Uh, Dr. McPherson joins us from Tucson, Arizona, uh, in between speaking tours. Uh, Guy McPherson, welcome back to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you as always. Yes, um, albeit under rather sad circumstances. Um, now, one, one thing that uh, I, I guess I feel the need to remark is that I, I find that there's something that both you and, and Mr. Rupert have in common is that. Uh, what what strikes me as being, uh, I guess, uh, an, an unwavering ded- dedication, uh, even a compulsion to just tell the truth as it is, no matter who it hurts, and uh, you know, you know, if, if it ends up shattering people's illusions, and so be it. Um, and the, it, it struck me, it struck me that maybe that you, you, the two of you, did feel a, a certain kind of kinship, which. Uh, may have led to the, the, the mutual respect you had for each other. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, is, that, uh, um, is, is that something you, you're feeling right now as you've uh, lost a, a kind of brother uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks? Yes, unquestionably. Michael's pursuit of truth, my pursuit of evidence and presenting that evidence uh, have had consequences. Uh, in my case, it, it cost me considerable credibility in the civilized world, in Michael's case as well. And so we, we were kindred spirits in that respect. As you point out, we didn't care who was hurt by the truth, and as it turned out, it hurt us as badly as it hurt anybody else. I've, I've great, I had great, great respect for Michael and his work. And I can't say enough good things about the the burden he carried, the burden of truth, for such a very long period of time. 
to, to what extent has, did Michael Rupert help open the door for you to, to get your information out? I think really quite a lot. I had had some success with local media in getting the word out, but he had me on his radio show, The Lifeboat Hour, four times in the span of about 19 months. And so obviously that gave me a a platform beyond the platform I'd had before I, I connected with him. What is his legacy going to be, as far as you're concerned? Well, he was his his unrelenting pursuit of reliable knowledge was what marked him throughout his life. From the time he was a, a police detective in Culver City, California, uh, pointing out the. Uh, relationship between CIA and drug trafficking in the United States in the 1970s. And then he was the first person to put together the evidence regarding 9-11 and the, the, the unbelievably comprehensive assessment of the evidence he provided in crossing the Rubicon is a hallmark of the kind of work he did and he just kept going and topic after topic regardless of who was was trying to bring him down disparage him disparage his message uh, denigrate him and make him seem like an unreliable source despite all of that he remained true to a pursuit of reliable knowledge. That's a that's simply amazing in a world that just grinds somebody down for that kind of pursuit. Yes, and um, talking about uh, grinding a person down, as somebody who has spent many years uh, trying to, uh, you know, confront unpleasant truths about you know near-term human extinction. Uh, and uh, you know, getting basically uh, criticized for it. Have you uh, come across coping mechanisms? Uh, um, Mike, you know, had you know he found his own way of coping with things, and uh, well, it's maybe not this uh, broadcaster's place to, to pass judgment. But I, I wonder if if you. Uh, you know, as, as others who are, are, are open and receptive to the messages that you and, and Mike are putting out, do you have any thoughts or suggestions as to how they can go forth with in a meaningful way uh, that uh, in, in addressing the, the, the very difficult uh, truths that, that are out there? Well, a couple of things have been important for me in coping. Um, there's a, a lama in the Buddhist tradition who founded a Dharma center in Winnipeg by the name of Jerry Kopolo. And Jerry indicated to me he'd been following my work for several years 
and then he saw a short video clip put together by filmmaker Pauline Schneider and released in October of last year, October 2013. And Jerry watched that, and, and he realized I'd made a profound transition, that up until that point, from the time he had started following my work, I had been frustrated and angry and didn't didn't know how to deal with information that was truly horrifying in a healthy way. And he said he saw that four-minute clip in October 2013, and he realized I had done the Asuba meditations. I had completed the Asuba meditations. And he told me this, and I, I thought, that's great. Jerry, what's an Asuba meditation? And he went on to tell me that those are meditations on the repulsive, on the most disgusting of things, and that I'd been conducting meditations without knowing what they were, without having access to any formal system of meditation, such as Buddhist practice. And so as a consequence, it took me a long time to work through the process and, and reaching a state where I came out the other side and realized that that looking at information and processing that information doesn't have to make you frustrated, angry, embittered. It, it doesn't have to make you feel guilty. It doesn't have to make you experience all those horrors that we typically associate with being human in a horrifying world. And so not long after that, in January of 2014, I went to a grief counseling workshop and became a, a certified um, practitioner of grief, grief recovery. And then two weeks later, I went to Lama Jerry's Dharma Center and did a series of meditations over a three-day retreat on death and dying. And that combination of events, the the dealing with the with the horrible reality for a long time, the coming to grips with it in my own admittedly long, torturous, unhealthy way, and then participating in a grief recovery workshop, and finally um, participating in Buddhist meditation practices, those were life-changing events to me. So I'd say... I changed as much between October 2013 and mid-February 2014 as I did in the rest of my life combined. That's how important those events were to me. Other people have other ways, and I've, of course, been disparaged for pursuing the path I pursued in working through the, the horrible information that I've come across and processed. But but it has worked for me. I don't know that it will work for anybody else. I don't know what works for anybody else. Uh, but that's the process that allowed me to come to terms with the loss, the losses I've experienced through a lifetime of observing the horrors of industrial civilization. Guy McPherson just uh, wanted to give you a chance if uh, there's any 
in coping with those of us who are, who are mourning Mike Rupert's death, uh, the uh, his loved ones, the map makers, the fast campers, the uh, others who, uh, who who are feeling this loss very intently. Do you have a any other messages uh, that, that you'd like to leave before we close? Well, only, again, to reiterate my profound respect for Michael and his work, and I can only hope that in my life I can use his memory as an inspiration for my pursuit of truth. He was and is an inspiration for those of us who are open to pursuit of reliable knowledge. Guy McPherson, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Guy McPherson is Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona and the author of the blog Nature Bats Last, which is available at guymcpherson.com. Over the course of the last hour, we heard a retrospective on the passing of former police officer, independent journalist, noble warrior, researcher, and broadcaster, Michael C. Rupert, a.k.a. Tracker of Truth. Our interview guests were Carolyn Baker, Kelly Ramarez Watson, Wesley Miller, Barry Zwicker, and Guy McPherson. Audio was obtained under fair use provisions, from the March 13, 2013 recording of the podcast Smells Like Human Spirit, C-SPAN's November 15, 1996 recording of the Los Angeles Town Hall meeting with CIA Director John Deutsch, and from a Talking Stick TV recording of Michael Rupert's January 15, 2005 lecture at the University of Washington. The complete account of Mike Rupert's death is chronicled at the website sherryspeak.wordpress.com. Carolyn Baker will be hosting and moderating an online memorial celebration of the life of Michael Rupert on Thursday, May 8th at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. If you wish to participate, please register at carolynbaker.net. We'll conclude now with a song by veteran folk singer Phil Oakes, who also took his life 38 years ago this month. My name is Michael Welch. For the Global Research News Hour and CKUW, thank you for joining us. And we hope you join us again next week for another regular installment of the Global Research News Hour. There's no place in this world where I'll belong when I'm gone. And I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone. And you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone. So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't feel the flowing of the time when I'm gone All the pleasures of love will not be mine when I'm gone My pen won't pour a lyric line when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here and I won't breathe a brace of air when I'm gone And I can't even worry about my cares when I'm gone 
Won't be asked to do my share when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here